You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the network, its advertisers, owners, or sponsors. This is Dr. Saba Maruf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. Hello, welcome back everybody to another episode of Unsung Heroes, stories to inspire here on Podcast Detroit. And I am joined by my co-host today, Calvin Moore. What up, doe? And our sound engineer, Jess. Hello. And it's just me and Calvin today. It is. Yes. We decided. So, okay. I didn't even realize this till like five minutes ago that I knew that our anniversary of the, you know, launch of the show was coming up, our one year anniversary. And then I'm looking at my calendar. I'm like, wait a second. It's almost to the day. March 24th, 2017 is when we started. Mm-hmm. And it's March 23rd today. Wow. That's so, great. And, wow. And, and in honor of that, since we're the only ones here, we have no guests, you're going to get an hour of silence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sound of silence. Stop yeah. it. We're supposed to be quiet. <laughs> Take a nap. Lay your head down, Jess. <laughs> that sounds good, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah, time, no, so we're like totally me. kind of off script today and um we're just we're just here to commemorate the year, which is pretty cool. Coming out of really like nowhere, just kind of an idea and a conversation and um having the opportunity to be on Calvin's show. Yep. That was like February. I think it was like February 1st or something. I can we, look it up. Yeah, I saw that on our my Facebook memories on oh, this day okay. thing. Right. Um, but yeah, it's kind of hard to believe. It yeah. went by fast. We made it. Yeah. So we've had a little bit of a hiatus. We had a few blips um, the last month. Um, Jess has not been feeling well. and Just say it. I failed. I failed. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we had an episode. <laughs> And it did not record. Yeah, so yeah. Happened. So, uh, <laughs> so that happened on your show too. I think it's like a rite of passage. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, that happened to you. Yeah, I remember you came did. in and like we're like upset about it. Yeah, that was an episode about gentrification. It oh, and it was yeah. great. And I had somebody from Channel Four on for that episode. Oh, and, and, yeah. Oh, whoa, that makes it. Actually re- yeah, I was worse. I was really <laughs> upset about it. Yeah, but we're still friends. So. Okay, that's good. She understood. I understood. So. Yeah, and actually, so we I had actually interviewed, my mom was in town, and so we had talked to her. It was a great conversation, but when we got home, she's like, why didn't you give me the questions before, and I would have done a better job if I had more time. I'm and like, mom, it was fine. Her mom was cool, too. I was like, man, it's like Dr. Sapa Maruf OG. I was like, so like bombed that I missed meeting your well, parents. Well, she'll come again. Oh, okay, <laughs> It was good. just my mom. She was great. My dad got, I was like, be no, no, no. interested to see the people that created <laughs> such a great human, oh, you know? Oh, my God, you're so sweet. Thank I mean, you. Well, well no, par- but you my are. My parents weren't even here. That. What are you talking about? but it's funny because my mom was totally like that's fine well when i come back we'll do it again and i was like okay that's all my all my fault because i didn't press Um, one one button i didn't press one button. i mean it would have been nice if i could have been here though yeah (laughs) so yeah but you were really sick yeah, no. but we even I had mean, to move out of this. Didn't we have to move? Yeah. Out? Th- so the time before that, oh, that was we were having yeah. all these other issues, yeah. and then um, my guest. Um, but even besides that, she had to. Um, she had work stuff that came up last minute, and she had to cut it short. And I haven't been able to get back in touch with her. So we know you so guys have kinda, missed us. Yes, it's been a little while. But we're back. Yeah, we're back. And I have an email address. I don't have a website yet, but I have okay. an email address. What? I think it's Unsung Heroes. You, th- you don't even know what it is. Yeah, no. At gmail.com. <laughs> I so if you a have gmail. any yeah, another Gmail taken. <laughs> if you have any um suggestions, please give please email us. Gmail was like the original Facebook, meaning that you could only get on Gmail by invite. 
back oh. in the day. Really? Yeah, and Facebook was invite only, yeah, and you had to be a college student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and they I opened do it up that. to your parents, and we're like, "All right, somebody invent something else." Now. What's this? Twitter? I'm going on that. <laughs> parents, still have, parents still haven't figured it out. <laughs> yeah, slowly Instagram is being taken over. Yeah, too. Instagram, Snapchat. Oh my gosh! Although more power to more power to Instagram. It is making ugly people look like models. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that filter is so heavy; they don't even look like people. Everybody looks like excessively airbrushed every time my sister puts a filter on i'm like who are you yeah. <laughs> i don't even know <laughs> but i do it to myself too i'm like man i'm, I'm good looking whoa who's this guy <laughs> wait that's still me <laughs> <laughs> oh sepia <laughs> yeah, hello <laughs> better looking me <laughs> so, so what are we, what are we doing yeah. what so are we, we doing? thought we would um you know and calvin had this you you've been wanting to do this since the beginning since just day have, one yeah i really. thought this should have been episode one yeah like get to know your hosts yes and we kept kind of putting it off because we had other people on and i was like yeah so for but, a year people have been going who are the hosts who are I they? Think they learned a little bit about us right? okay all right but I like that's I've, what this i played it close to the chest yeah. <laughs> i'm an international man of mystery <laughs> this is me without alcohol by the way you know what so i started using the I don't know if you call it bit.ly, like the hyperlink. Yes, I love that. And it's so cool because you can um, track like, you know, how many clicks you get and also where people are clicking from. And I've actually had uh, a click from like Kuwait and like China. Whoa. So we are kind of international, maybe. Right, that's kind of cool. <laughs> but I don't know who it is. It's like, you know, you just, you don't really know who's yeah, listening. Yeah, but have you had one from Siberia yet? Because no. that's when you've made it. Yeah, I that's know. That's what I've you been really told in the bit. world of podcasting. If you get somebody in Siberia who's listening... <laughs> They're really bored because <laughs> you know there is there there is punishment from the Russian government. Oh, oh. You're, you're transferred to Siberia. Oh. Well, they're probably not allowed to listen to podcasts. Yeah, true story. Yeah. So they they had to work really hard to get to your podcast. Yeah, it's That's like they, like decreased level of security. Yeah, true story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Russian jokes. <laughs> but anyway. anyway, so that's what we're going to do today. We are. Um, going to interview each other. That's yeah, what we thought we would commemorate our one year anniversary with. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how. You start. Who's going to listen and how far we're going to reach. But we thought, hey, this will be fun. Okay. So, okay, Calvin. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Starting with like y- your well, upbringing. I was born a poor black child. <laughs> Come on, the jerk, anybody? No, nobody? All right, fine. Watch the jerk <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Uh, my upbringing. I brought it up several times on the show. I was raised in the military. So uh, my mom and dad, my dad went to the Naval Academy. My mom went to a college called Lady Cliff College. Uh, which shared all of their dances with the Naval Academy at that time, because at that time uh, the Naval Academy did not admit women. And Mm. so uh, the guys uh, in the 70s were like, I'm not about to dance with another dude. So uh, they decided to have dances with the the ladies' college. And so my mom and my dad, one thing led to another. They had my brother, uh, then they had me, then they had another brother, and then my sister. So uh, raised... Born and raised in, well, born in Virginia and moved all over. Just moved all over um, because I th- I thought like a kid thinks, right? And so everything I knew about the world was from two places, uh, church and Saturday morning cartoons, <laughs> right? And so I watched He-Man and She-Ra mm-hmm. and the Me Snorks too. and the Smurfs and G.I. Joe and Mask and all these different things. And so I had, I thought everywhere you'd go, you'd st- You'd be stationed somewhere for like four years and then you'd be deployed somewhere else. And so I was born in Virginia and then we got relocated to Japan for four years. And then we got relocated to North Carolina 
for uh, four, yeah, four years before my father got out of the military. And where in North Carolina did you? Uh, uh, Cherry Point. Okay. Uh, Cherry Point uh, Naval Air Station. It's the largest Marine Corps base in the world. And it's on the coast of North Carolina. And here's the deal. I thought as a child that the president called your parents personally and would say, all right, Skeletor is wreaking havoc <laughs> in Japan and I need you to go there because every kid thought his dad was a hero, right? And so, you know, we saw G.I. Joe and so we just assumed that they were trying to take out Cobra Commander and, and that's how it worked. So obviously you grew up and found out that wasn't true. But moved everywhere and then settled here when my dad got out of the military. We came up here to Michigan. I've been here pretty much uh, since I went into 10th grade. So And so mm. all of my adult life, you know, the la- latter half of my teen years and all of my adult life. So I've been here 23, 24 years at this point. And we were the second African-American family ever to move into our neighborhood. Uh, oh, and that wow. was in 1994. So seen a lot of changes uh, since we've been here as well. So, yeah, that was my upbringing. Tell me about yours, Saba. So, yeah, I think I've kind of sprinkled some here or there, but... Um, we got a lot of yeah. it last week, but uh, didn't record. <laughs> it's okay. Didn't record. Um, Sorry. But no, no, no. So I um, I actually... It's funny because I know throughout the show we've kind of... Um, as we've talked to our guests, we've kind of realized that there's a lot of parallels even between our lives because um, I was born in North Carolina and my parents <clears throat> um, are from... Originally, I mean, they immigrated from India um, my mom did and my dad from Pakistan, but actually my dad had actually lived in England for 10 years before coming to the U.S. And um, and so, yeah, I was born in um, Durham, North Carolina and lived there for the first nine years of my life. And I think, you know what I think moving does when you're that young? I think um, when you kind of um, certain times of your life are circumscribed by where you live. And I feel like I feel like I have a lot of memories because of the moves because, okay, this was before this major move. We had a big move when I turned nine. So I have, I feel like I have, remember a lot before then. And a lot of, um, really, it was a very impressionable time, obviously. Um, but just like a lot of amazing memories. Um, we lived in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, still have a lot of friends from there. Um, and it, that's one thing that's really cool about Facebook, reconnecting with a lot of people, even from the, you know, from back then. But yeah, that's the thing that's also uh, terrible about Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Like, oh, God, they friended me. But um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, living life as um, the child of immigrants and my parents trying to instill um, their cultural values and um, their religious values. And I grew up at going to like a very small mosque at the time. And kind of what's interesting about it is so we were in one of the major cities. Uh, my parents live in Raleigh now, and that's a very diverse and kind of a bigger, obviously a bigger city. It's a capital of North Carolina. Um, but at the time we were in Durham and um, the mosque that we went to um, was a smaller mosque. It was actually the small space that they used to rent. Uh, and it was primarily actually, it was very, very interesting. It was primarily African-American and I guess, the, and then a lot, a lot of Ara, um, Arab Americans and Desis or Indian Pakistani families. Um, and so that was a really special time for me. And then when I turned nine, actually, my dad um, had this opportunity. This was very common in the 90s um, where, you know, he and this and I really give props to my dad because he was like at the height of his career. He's an he's an anesthesiologist at Duke University, but he was um, had this opportunity to actually move to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And so and that was a time when there was a lot of people from all over the world that were uh, they were inviting people to come and just kind of help teach um, the, the Saudis and stuff 
um, you know, they were just like this massive boom because of oil and stuff like that. Um, basically, you know, had a lot of hospitals. And so my dad had a position there. And I give him a lot of props for like kind of basically both my parents for like leaving everything um, that they had built so far and just kind of on a whim, but also just kind of uh, kind of they wanted to do it to give us a different experience to like grow up in a different country and see what that's like. And also in their mind, it was also to kind of get to live in a Muslim country. Now, this was kind of before we had all the, you know, all the political stuff, really. Um, But so we so that's what we did and we lived on a compound which i know all my friends are like they think there's like one compound in the whole country but there were several compounds we went to an international school and so from the age of 9 to um 15 that's where i went to school and lived and it was really cool cuz we we were in the compound so it was very much like protected and kind of our own little world um in this foreign country um but it was amazing like i had friends from and i still have friends from egypt turkey um, Europe, all of Sweden, um, Korea, ca- Canada. There were a lot of Canadians. <laughs> um, so it was very interesting. But it was also interesting because people were very patriotic at the school too. So I grew up kind of um, in a time like, you know, a lot of youth and adults, you know, now growing up here in this post 9-11 world, I kind of felt like I had a taste of that even when I was a kid because people knew a little bit about Islam. And there was a lot of things that they saw in the, in the country like and um, and I, and they had a knowledge of Islam that was a little bit different than mine. And so it's almost like people had stereotypes, um, even that I had to kind of deal with even at that age. Like I remember in eighth grade, so there would be like the call to prayer, right? The Adhan. And my eighth grade teacher, uh, the teachers were amazing. I had like amazing teachers. But one teacher, he did this and it was probably just a joke, but he was kind of like imitating the call to prayer and was like, yeah, it kind of woke me up in the morning and he started imitating it. And that like really, that was really offensive. And I was in eighth grade sitting there and I didn't really, I didn't really know what to do or say. And later on I was like, why didn't I say something? But it's like, I was like 13. What are you going to say at the time? So a lot of that, like people, there was a lot of stereotypes about Islam, like, oh, you know, I mean, because of kind of what they saw, like our, you know, women can't drive and our women suppressed and they just kind of, it was, it was just like, well, this is what we see. So this must be what it was. And I, and this is a time when I'm trying to figure out my own identity and religion and then trying to deal with that too. It's got to suck to bump up against someone who this has, this is my perception of what Islam is. Therefore, it is. this is what Islam is. Yeah. Like, well, no. Okay. So. Yeah. So then I moved, actually, I moved to Michigan around the same time as you in the late nineties. Um, and and actually, I'm really glad that I did at the time because I moved to a community with a very vibrant um, and very active Muslim community. And um, and the friends that I made at that time were still really close. I had a very good group of friends. And it was kind of the first time that I really appreciated my faith. And um, I kind of had like a spiritual kind of awakening, I guess, like I saw the spirituality side, spiritual part of, of my religion where I don't think I really had that as much before. Okay. So, yeah. So what do you do now? So I, now I am a child child psychiatrist. I see kids. And your mom is too. Teenagers and adults. And my mom is too. Kids too. Okay. So here's the deal. Yeah. You see kids, teenagers, and adults. Doesn't mm-hmm. that make you not a child psychologist once you see adults? What's the, what's oh, the cutoff point? What's well, cutoff 18. Point? But so basically for psychiatry. So I went to medical school. Uh-huh. And then I um, was in residency and everybody is trained to um, treat adults like you're when you're in residency, then it's general psychiatry is treating adults and then you can do an extra two years or Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and child psychiatry. So a lot of child psychiatrists do like I'm that's my specialty. Okay. But I like I kind of like seeing the full range. So I have patients. It's kind of cool actually. I have patients from maybe my youngest right now is maybe like five, and my oldest is like seventy seven. So oh wow. So, yeah. Okay. So. <clears throat> Adult psychology, I think most of us kind of have a grasp on what that looks like, whether it's completely misrepresented in, in pop culture. You see the psychologist, someone on the you know on the couch and talking. I mean, that's generally our understanding of that. Mm-hmm. But the the reality <clears throat> the reality is, um, adults have adult thoughts and children have children thoughts. So we we can think more clearly about things than children can. Even though we say children see things more clearly than adults sometimes, we can think through things rationally, children uh, maybe not as much. So what is it like doing psychiatry for kids who are still very much figuring out Mm -hmm. pretty much everything about the world? Now, adults might be trying to figure out their identity still into their old age, but children are figuring out everything about the world, how it works, and also who am I in all of this. So what is it like doing child psychiatry? Oh, I mean, I um, – well, number one, I just love seeing like the whole gamut, like the whole lifespan, the age range. Um, but seeing ki- – like first of all, I like seeing the whole gamut because just that. It's like kind of balances it for me. Um, uh, and what is it like seeing kids? I mean, I feel – hmm. Number one, it's working with families, so it's kind of okay. helping parents. Kind of, it's you know, it's kind of helping parents understand kind of what's going on, you know, what could be going on with their child. Because the thing that we do a lot is we have exactly we kind of have our, have our own way of thinking, and we're mature, and we've learned to inhibit responses, and we've learned to deal with you know small blips and um, uh, frustrations. But we sometimes expect kids to do that too. And sometimes parents do, too. They have this expectation that kids are little adults, and they're not. So sometimes it's just like um, helping helping redefine expectations uh, for the adults and the families, uh, the parents and the child's life. But I don't know. I think for me, I, um, I feel like I can – and maybe it's being a parent myself, but uh, I never really had a hard time, I think. There's very few times that I've had a hard time relating to a patient. There's some patients, some kids that come in and they're just like not going to talk to you or, you know, it's just going to take a little bit of time to build rapport. But I would feel I feel like that's kind of few and far between. It's really amazing that. um, So basically what I do is I usually start and most child psychiatrists do is you start with both the parent and the child. If they're like (laughs) if there's a lot of tension, then you separate them pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And sometimes if they're really close, then you can. I mean, there's times when I've done the whole interview with both of them. But uh, many times, most of the time, I'll see the parent alone and the child alone. I'll also always see the kid alone first the kiddo alone um and it's actually really amazing how easily they open up Hmm. um i guess i don't have a lot of younger kids i mean most of the kids that i see are um articulate and verbal and i think once you know everybody and it's kind of like the show like everybody people like talking about themselves Hmm. in a way and so you ask about school and friends and activities and i mean I, i guess you get a lot just by asking the questions and there's not really any magic to it i'd like to say that i'm very skilled and you know um, but maybe being around my own kids, um, you know, just kind of helps with that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. But, you know, we play games. We have like, do- like toys sometimes in the office or like have them draw pictures to- as a starting point. Um, but it's actually, it's, um, you know, of course it can be challenging, but like I said, they're, they're pretty open and you kind of, you're putting a story together. 
I just gave a lecture to Oakland University med students this week and was also talking to them about the students about how um, you're listening to the content, but you're also actually listening to how they're saying things, how they're expressing themselves. What are the thought, the things that they're kind of focusing on? You're kind of reading, literally like reading between the lines too. Okay. So, yeah, but so we did talk about this last week, but um, I mean, yeah, you mentioned my mom's a child psychiatrist and I think I've always had an interest in it because I would see like the books that she was reading and the stuff that was strewn across like the live around the family room floor and, you know, coffee table, the kind of books and journals and things. So like titles like um, The Boy That who, who Wouldn't Stop Washing, that's like a classic book on OCD yeah. and these like pictures these textbooks with these pictures of these monkeys with these those wire mothers and like one has food and the other one is more cloth and which one does the monkey go to and they go to the ones the even even when that it's not a mother but even when that fake object doesn't have the they will drink the water from the wire mother but then they prefer to be with the the cloth mother these are harlow's i think those are harlow's attachment studies so i just found that stuff really fascinating and um behavior relationships how the brain works and then my mom would come home. So my mom finished her training when I was in high school, and that was probably pretty influential, too. I'd already kind of decided I wanted to maybe pursue being a child psychiatrist. But when I was in high school, she was finishing up her fellowship, and she would come home with these stories. She worked um, for like two years, a year or two, um, in a long – it's like now it's only last like standing long-term facility for inpatient um, child uh, child patients, pediatric population. And there's just a story she would come home with of like these kids that, um, you know, who came from like just these really from abusive uh, situations, backgrounds, families, um, broken families and, you know, the effects of neglect and abuse, substance abuse. Um, it would just like really kind of break my heart. But at the same time, I, I just kind of felt like an affinity towards, you know, maybe one day kind of helping in whatever way. And a lot of people ask me, like, how do you you know, isn't doesn't it get depressing? And how do you kind of keep it um, separate from your personal life? And I mean, it is. I mean, there's stories definitely that are really sad. But I just kind of feel like it's not really going to go away by just not doing anything about it. Like at least this is one small thing I can help, like one kid, one child, one family at a time. Hmm. Like you're an emotional first responder in a way. Sometimes, yeah. When you think about like people, like when you think about first responders, like they see the yeah. worst to the worst, like police showing up, like guy beating up his wife or something or you know emt showing up at a car accident and something terrible has happened they see the worst of the worst and then they have to go home and act as if they haven't yeah and so i imagine in a way dealing with people's emotions when people don't know how to even deal with their emotions it's got to be kind of a you're like an emotional first responder to me and and that's how i conceive of, of what you're doing and i think it's great work and I mean, I am outpatient, so I don't know if I could work in the hospital. That's when, like, you really see like crisis situations and like really see, worse than worse. I'm starting to understand by talking with you what outpatient means. Yeah, sorry, I'm like throwing around these words. No, so. no, no, no. Now mm-hmm. I'm, I'm. I mean, I think people can figure it out by mm-hmm. context. Inpatient means you're in a hospital. Yeah. Outpatient means like I'm deciding to come see you yeah, at exactly. a private practice kind of deal. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. So it is a little bit. I mean, I don't know if like we do six months of working in the hospital in our training. Um, this is just for the child part. Mm-hmm. In adults, you spend like ten months, nine, ten months, and then plus two months in the emergency room. So it's a lot. But, um, but yeah, that was really hard. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I don't think I could do that, and I really give it up to people that can. Um, but I mean, you. I mean, obviously, you, like you build your own coping skills and your own reservoir, and you like you you kind of have to keep it separate. Otherwise, you're not. And and 
all of us, I mean, we all have to kind of take care of ourselves and, uh, Oh, my my husband just sent me this text. I, I, don't worry, I'm going to mention you, honey. <laughs> yes, he's listening. <laughs> you haven't been mentioned once. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. I She's know. giving me googly eyes right now, man. She's giving me googly eyes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, well, no, I do have to say. So, I mean, I was a non-traditional student in the sense that I was married when I started medical school. Mm-hmm. And my husband was um, in residency. And I was just talking to a... Uh, a friend of mine, a uh, younger friend that just got married and we were kind of just talking about the challenges of that. And I, you forget about it, right? You kind of forget about like the things that you've been through. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was actually, you know, pretty challenging. Like he was in a very grueling program. He's a dermatologist and a uh, somewhat toxic work environment at times. And I was like trying to get into med school. So I had a lot of free time. Um, but, you know, we kind of went through that together. We kind of, and poor, poor guy, he like finally finishes his residency and I'm like just starting medical school in the middle of medical school. So he had to kind of go through all that and then throw a couple kids in there. Um, But no, but my husband's amazing. Like he, uh, and you've met him, Jess has met him. He's been in the studio. He's always been super. We went to a U2 concert Oh yeah, we went to a U2 concert together. Always very supportive. And even now, like just always really supportive. And I tend to like get into I sign up for things that I really shouldn't be signing up for and making my life even more busy than it needs to be. And he's always, and I know I'm like waiting for him to say something, but he's very patient. So, um, so no, I've been really blessed, but in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of, um, doing what we do, it's, I think both my husband and I feel really privileged that, um, we get to see a different side of, um, people and it's actually really helped me a lot, even in this time. I know we talk a lot about it on the show, just the political environment and stuff, because you're just like connecting with people one on one and you're having those conversations every day, um, in-depth conversations. And people like tell you things that are really – people will tell you things that they haven't told anybody ever. And you feel very privileged and um, humbled and honored to um, – What's he to saying? To kind of be the – What's he saying? <laughs> to be the reservoir coming through of right now. Oh my gosh. Stop and my giving him googly eyes. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so we know at least three people are listening. <laughs> and okay, so I have four kids and everyone's like, how do you do it? And I really don't. I actually, I, I have uh, my amazing husband and an amazing, honestly, an amazing nanny who's been with me since residency. And sometimes I feel from New guilty. Jersey? Does she have a really annoying voice? <laughs> no, 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 not at all. After? All right, no. All right. <laughs> not at all. But she is like super nanny. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I don't know you have a nanny. Right. That's why. That's why I can come here on a Friday. Okay. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be like, "Thanks, Nan- my- What's the nanny's name? Dina. Dina. Yeah. Dina's getting a shout out on the show. <laughs> what up, Dina? That's awesome. She's laughing. Thanks for doing what you do. <laughs> oh, Asia's listening too. My little one. Okay. All right. What's can up, say Asia? Hi to Asia? How you doing, Asia? Yeah. Asia, what's up? What up, girl? A girl, guy. Girl. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry, girl. What up, girl? All right. So anyway, out. so you tell me, a little, talk to us a little bit, Calvin. I've been talking for a long time now. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, <it's>, <laughs> <laughs> but it's your show. You do what you want. I do it on mine. So, um, so what? What do I do? I, I feel like my life, by comparison, and, and this is the thing, I I do this. I compare my life to others and feel like, oh, I'm not doing anything. And then I, I talk to people. I, yeah, but then I talk. Yeah, you talk to people who are like super impressed by what you do. So no one's yeah. ever impressed by what they're doing themselves. Mm-hmm. And then they're reminded by others, like, oh, my God, I could never do. So so all that to say, um, I love – thank you for, for sharing what you do. I guess I'll share what I do. So um, I, uh, I run a tour company in the city of Detroit. So I am 
a historian by trade. So I went to college for history. I went to I went to college for uh, for history and religion. So technically, I went to school for religion. And my mom was like, maybe you should have something to fall back on. And so I chose like the next discipline that uh, you can't really fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> Do not go to school for history or religion. It's just it's just a waste of time and money. But um, I guess studies have shown that over the long haul, history maker uh, history history majors end up making a lot of money over the long haul. That is yet to be seen in my life. We'll see what happens. But um, I I loved history. I've always mm-hmm. loved history. I've always loved uh, religion as well. And so I went to college specifically for religion because I was always that kid in, um, in Sunday school at church who the, – the, the guy or the girl who was who was assigned to do children's church that Sunday, um, they'd be like, "All right, kids." There was like a rotation of stories you could tell to kids that were like, "Okay," because if you re- if you read the Bible, there's a lot of stories that are skipped over for the kids. <laughs> they get to them when you get to big when you get to big church, they'll talk about them, but even then, they'll sometimes avoid them. So there are a few key stories that people had learned to tell children. One of them was like like the story of Noah's Ark, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or the story of uh, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. These are all great mm-hmm. stories. Like, oh, my God, the Egyptians were chasing the Jewish people. And then they got down to the water. They're like, what are we going to do now, Moses? We're stuck. <laughs> and then God miraculously opens the, the waters and they crossed on dry land. And then the Egyptians got there and the waters came down and they, yeah, the Jewish people escaped. And Noah's Ark is like, hey. I want you to build a boat and I want you to put all these animals on it and I want you to float in the, in the water. I'm going to flood the whole earth. I'm going to save your family. And I was a kid who was like, so um, are we just going to gloss over the part where God killed everybody on the planet? I mean, it's cool that it's a floating zoo and all, but that's a lot of people when you think about it. Uh, and like the Egyptian people, I don't think everybody was bad. I mean, there's probably a soldier who was just following orders and now he's in the middle of the Red Sea that seems to be dry and it was okay for the Jewish people to go across. And now they're all crushed to death by water. (laughs) I was a kid who was asking those questions. And the problem was the person who was, um, the person who was like assigned to do children's church that week, they had kids, the rotation, the way the rotation worked is like, if you had kids and your kids were in the, in the youth program, uh, you would be assigned a Sunday three or four times a year where you had to go in and take care of everybody's kids, right? Kind of like takes a village, right? Mm-hmm. And so because they're assigned, you have someone who's working for GM or working for Ford and just doing what they're assigned to do. So I'm an engineer by trade, and this kid is asking me these deep theological mm-hmm. questions. What do I do with this? And so uh, I went to school for that because there were all these fantastic stories, but there were these fantastic stories that I was being taught these stories are happening to real people in real space in mm. real time. So this is history, right? And so there was that that part of my life. And then my mother um, is a family historian. And back before you had the internet, you had to go – if you wanted to research your family, there was no – you know, 23andMe, there was no Ancestry.com. There was none of this stuff yet, right? Uh, and so my mom would travel from North Carolina to Spartanburg, South Carolina – which is where our family members have been enslaved. And she would go to the library there and she would sit in the library for hours and go through something that was called microfiche. Now you might remember microfiche. Mm -hmm. Now everything's online, but this is before um, census data and family records were digitized. You had to go to a library and you had to 
take film essentially and put it onto this uh, lighted board and kind of scroll through old newspapers and old census mm-hmm. data and all that kind of stuff. My mom would go and do this. She'd take a weekend trip to do this kind of stuff. Now she has access to it all online. Um, but she still has these crates and crates and crates of all this census data wow. and our family history. And so I was kind of always influenced by by these stories that were said to be historical uh, religiously and then my mother's love for history as well. And so when my mom said, maybe you should have something to fall back on because I don't think religion is what you should be doing. Um, and now years later, since I have that religious degree and a few more, uh, my mom's like, I'm glad that you did it, right? You, you should be doing it. Um, but I did the history degree as kind of a fallback, uh, mainly because of that influence. And so I did that. And that ended up leading into, so I got out of college with these two degrees that really, there's not a huge market for historians. Mm-hmm. There's not a huge market for theologians. And so I just kind of bounced between, you know, working an office job, organi- you know, organizing files. You get really good at organizing files when you're a historian. You're very good at organizing things. <laughs> you have to be. It's, it's like records, right? So I did some stuff for, uh, for a factory that was kind of defunct. Uh, it was just an old husband, a husband and wife who had bought a factory and they were hoping that times would change and they'd have all these parts. So I was just kind of organizing their office. In the meantime, I ended up working at Payway, which is sub, mm-hmm. you know Chinese food for suburbanites. Uh, and ended up getting several jobs in retail. Worked for Verizon, worked for Apple, and I was never really happy. I loved people. I loved sales. I was good at it. And eventually a job popped up in downtown Detroit working for a company that does tours. And I was like, oh, that's right up my alley. And so I ended up going on the interview and I knocked it, I knocked this interview out of the park. I was like, man, this is amazing. I did great, you know, brushing dirt off my shoulders. I was, this is amazing. And then they don't call me. They don't call me. And so I'm like, well, well, their loss, you know, screw them. I'd be amazing. Then I get a call. Hey, we'd like to have you. <laughs> so uh, they hire me. And I ended up working for them, and unfortunately, they were they were a nonprofit, and uh, they ended up having to let me go after a year and a few months, right? Uh, and normally, when you lose a job, people will come alongside you. Oh my God, what are you going to do? What's your ne- What are your next steps? What's your next plan? Uh, or hey, I know this guy who's working at this company. Call him; he'll get you in. That kind of deal. Everyone said to me, "You're going to start your own tour company, right? Because you're really good at it." And the reason I brought up the degrees that I have is one of my religious degrees focused on hospitality, welcoming the stranger. And we've kind of lost that uh, that idea in our culture. Uh, we have a very fences make good neighbors culture, right? Um, don't really talk to your neighbors too much. If they borrow a cup of sh- – borrowing a cup of sugar is like an antiquated idea, right? Uh, borrowing a lawnmower is kind of an antiquated idea at this point. Uh, we keep to ourselves. We do our own thing. Uh Rather than borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, you get lawn service, mm. right? You just rent someone else to do it for you. So yeah. hospitality was a big part of my religious degree. And then I find myself in a city that is 316 years old, almost 317 years old. It's one of America's oldest cities. A lot of people don't know that about Detroit. And so here I am starting this company and I get to use – my history degree, and I get to use my religious background as well by welcoming the stranger because more often than not, people coming into the country or coming into the city uh, aren't from here. And so 
I have this tour company where most of what I do is for, for large companies, private tours for large companies, which is a lot of fun. But what I really love to do are public tours. People who have lived here their whole lives who are like, hey, it's something free to do on a Saturday. I'm going to come downtown. I'm going to go on this walking tour. Well, this free walking tour is how I drum up business, right? Because uh, you'll someone will come on the walking tour. It'll be free. And they'll be like, by the way, I work for Ford. You know, and we've got like 400 people that are doing something at a conference this summer. Can you do a tour for us? And that, you know, that brings in actual paying customers. So I get to show people this city. And in a way, I'm also in sales, right? Because most of the people that come in, they're coming in to interview with a company and they, they can't not take the interview. They might be interviewing in a city like LA, Chicago, and New York as well. Uh, and those cities are LA, Chicago, and New York. That's what I say on all my tours. Like those, if you don't know, uh, but then there's Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. But the companies in Detroit are willing to pay people a higher premium to come here. So they, they have to take the interview. They're like, that's a lot of money. I got to go. And my job is to kind of reshape their ideas of what Detroit is about to help them understand the narrative that's going on here. That's and awesome. so, yeah, and I love, I love doing it. It's one of the few jobs where that, I, that I've ever been in where you can change someone's mind in a span of two hours. I mm-hmm. absolutely love it. And it tends to be more seasonal. So I'm getting into that time of year. We're, we're in March right now, the time of this recording. Um, and my phone is ringing off the hook and I'm getting email after email after email about, Hey, we got this going on, this, that, and the other going on. Uh, and we got a group coming into the city and blah, 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 blah. So I get to welcome the stranger and I get to use my history degree. I get to share my love of history. And that's the other thing. I went into history education and after a semester, I realized I don't want to do that. I love history, but I don't want to be in the school system because I, I went in and did some student teaching and realized very quickly all the politics that play into that, uh, the the lack of supplies for teachers. We're paying basketball players $30 million to shoot a ball into a hoop, uh, and teachers are underpaid mm-hmm. and underfunded, those kinds of things. So I didn't feel like playing that game. And here I am now able to educate people about history in the places where the history happened. It's one thing to, to take someone into – it's one thing to talk about the history of a building in a classroom. So this building was built in this year by this person. It's another thing entirely to take mm-hmm. you inside the building and talk about you know the structure and the economy at the time and the materials used and the art you know that, that's in the building and things like that. So that's, that's what I do for a living. That's what that's pays amazing. the bills. I, I, I love doing that. So yeah. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. So I tell people too that um, I actually am not like a science person or a math person. Those were kind of uh, the subjects that I had to work a little bit harder at. But, um, and I think that's something that uh, I really, you know, we talk a lot about each, what books you're reading and I recommend books to you and I love to read to see what your recommendations are. But I really loved like sociology, history, anthropology. Those mm-hmm. are the cla- like I took all the pre-med classes I needed to take in undergrad, but the classes that really left an imprint on me in college at from University of North Carolina is where I went in Chapel Hill are those like I took a Mughal art class and a Southeast Asian class, his, uh, anthropology class and African-American history. And I did a independent study actually. Um, I don't know if you know this. I did an independent study on um, at the time. Now they might be have classes like this, but on actually Muslim slaves in the antebellum South. Ooh. And yeah. We need to talk about that. Um, yeah, it was actually. I totally glossed over that part of things in, in, my, <laughs> in final, my final paper. Well, my final paper was about slavery in the antebellum uh, oh, wow. South. Oh, yeah. I have a really good book I can recommend. Okay. To yeah, you. absolutely. But that's what. Um, so I actually went to med school specifically to become a psychiatrist. If I didn't 
do that, then I was either going to become a psychologist or I was actually thinking about academics and um, doing like a degree actually like in history or Islamic Islamic um, history, um, the anthropology and study of like American Muslims now. I mean, I find all that really fascinating. But what I love about what I do is that you can use all of that. And I actually do a few lectures for residents at Wayne State where we talk about like acculturation and um, and I have kind of my grand rounds was on um, actually on religion, spirituality, and mental health and psychiatry, and I've kind of like evolved it over the past, I guess nine years, ten years hmm. now. Um, and I do even like talks on like treating Muslim, treating the Muslim patient, and things like that. Wow. So what, that's what I kind of love about this field is, I mean, you have to. It's not just science, and a lot of it is art and like knowing about people. Um, so it's um, yes, we're you know it's a medical specialty, but. It's really kind of uh, mirroring a lot of different um, areas. But you do this so, too. You yeah. do this too. So, yeah. so why do you do this podcast? I'm I love being on it with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because I I thank you for being here. Oh, like no every Friday, like you could be sleeping in or you could be giving a tour. So I really appreciate that. Well, I mean, it was a, me it was at eleven today, so yeah. I still slept in. <laughs> <laughs> well, no thanks to my wife. No, I, I love you, honey. Um, but no, I mean, why do you do this podcast? So I guess we could, you know, I know we've mentioned this on a show, but I had the opportunity to be on your show. Um, and that's the first time. I mean, I've listened to a few podcasts like on NPR and stuff like that. But this, the first time I walked into this building was really cool. Shout out to um, Dave yep. for creating this as a space that anybody that wants to have a show can have a show. Um and except, that was, for, except for those neo Nazis that we said couldn't have a show on the network. Okay, thank you there's for a, that. There's a few people. Yeah, they can't come join. Them. <laughs> okay, so there is a little bit of a screening process. Yeah, there is a screening process. <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, I guess that was around the time, um, actually, very recently after the election, and um, it was a wonderful opportunity to be on. I almost didn't even take it. I was going to pass the buck on to other someone else, um, but you did a show on just you know being. Um, American a Muslim in the, these times and at the time I was like oh there's so many other people in our community that could talk about this and I was like look I just have to talk about my experience I don't have to be an expert on it or have a PhD in it um, or just talk you have a PhD in psych- child psychology but um, but uh, no I mean we talked and I kind of just was like well this this is kind of a new medium and just like you're saying, people are kind of living in their silos. Everything is so divided right now and people don't really know each other. And if you come across at it as, from a standpoint of like, oh, get to know a Muslim American or something, I don't know. I feel like we're even at that point where people already have their preconceived notions and they might not. So I kind of started thinking about it and was like, I just want to share stories of um, people there's so many amazing people in our midst that are that have followed their passion and their dreams and they've built something that are making a contribution or an impact in so many various um, diverse creative ways and outlets. So why not kind of share those stories? Um, and what's something I like love about my job, too, is just being able to sit down for a period of time and just kind of like bring those stories out. Obviously, it's a different context when I'm at work, but that's really what it is. It's like people sharing their stories. Um and so that's kind of what we did, and um, and you definitely you helped me kind of start that, talk me through it, encourage me, um, and so you know we've had um, probably like thirty something guests. This is our thirty fifth episode, um, but I think yeah, that's kind of what we've done, and it's not it's like all backgrounds. Uh, it's not specific to Muslim Americans by any means. Of course, many of my guests have been Muslim, but also of different backgrounds too: African American, um, Arab American. 
um, from all across the country. Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of it in a nutshell. Cool. What about you? Why do Your I do... show has been going on for uh, we, we two, just, uh, yeah, a year and a half. Um, yeah, a year and a half. We've just entered into our fourth season. Um, mainly because the first season uh, ended at 16 episodes. I was like, it's a new year. Let's just start a, a new season. And uh, then that second season was uh, 27 episodes. And I was like, man, this seems kind of long. Uh, and so now... Uh, Go ahead. I have a question. No, 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 it's fine. Um, now we're in our fourth season. We just started it, and we go by series. So we're currently in a four-week series called How Black Lives Matter. We're looking at uh, black – we just looked at black faith uh, this past uh, Wednesday. Uh, black faith, uh, black family, black economics, and black um, uh, politics and protests. But really, the reason I started my show was because uh, – and the, and the show is called Leading Questions with Calvin Moore, which is, again, how we met. And so Leading Questions with Calvin Moore is – about fostering dialogue. And my co-host, Kent, likes to say, uh, the reason I joined Calvin in this endeavor is because Facebook wasn't really working out for me, right? <laughs> so you, you get on Facebook, and you might end up have, starting off having a what you think is a good dialogue, and then it just devolves into calling people names and, you know, being way off track from the original point that people were making. And then, of course, that can be interrupted as well. Or you well. just stop talking and you have yeah. like this feeling. Someone gets blocked and some, someone, across, someone you don't even know across the United States has, has ticked you off. And <laughs> so what I wanted to do was to get people face-to-face sitting across the table from each other who disagree with each other to sit down, have a conversation uh, about things that you know they disagree about. And at the end of the conversation, the great thing is sometimes people would still say, you know what, I still disagree with you fundamentally. We did a series on why I'm conservative, why I'm liberal, and then moving beyond identity politics where we had conservatives and liberals across the table from each other. And they walked out of the room still 100% disagreeing with each other fundamentally. But they were all able to say, but now I don't think you're an idiot. Now I don't think you're a moron, right? And I think that that's something that's lost in mm-hmm. our culture. This, this art of dialogue is is very, very lost. And so that's why I do what I do on the show. And it's great when I get phone calls. We'll do an episode on police brutality. And I'll get a call from someone who's a cop going, you don't understand what it's like to be a police officer. Who are you to say this? And then I'll get a call from another cop who lives in like Minneapolis who will say, everything you said is spot on. I'm a police officer, and everything you said is the reason why I decided to become a police officer in the first place, so I could be the change that I want to see in in my own community. And so I think that that's what I love about this show. I love getting the people who push back, right, Mm -hmm. because maybe I don't understand something. So come on and and talk about it. And then I also love the people who are going, hey, you know what? That's absolutely true. And I love the people who said, you know what? I came in thinking one thing, and now it's several weeks later. And I pushed back really hard on that episode, and I said I didn't agree. But now it's several weeks later, and I've really been thinking about this, wow. and now my perspective has changed. So that's what my show is all about, is um, putting perspectives side by side, letting them talk it out, and then hopefully along the way changing perspectives. But if I don't change perspectives at all, at least – or if I don't change a point of view at all, at least changing the perspective of whether someone is an idiot or not. You know, walking away from respect. It's an experiment in civility is what I like to say. So so that's my show. Wow. That's amazing. We're going to wrap it up. But actually, you have a call in. You have a, you have a question here. I have a question? Yes. Okay. This is for my husband. Okay. Hi, Calvin. How do you envision the future of Detroit and the suburbs going forward one year and five to ten years from now? How has your knowledge of Detroit's history help you see where we are and where we're going. All right. Well, give me two minutes to answer this. Okay. Because, right, yeah, we are out of time. So how do I envision the, uh, the future of Detroit suburbs going forward? Well, it seems uh, we've – I'll say this. 
in the past, we have had what have been false renaissances. You know, the Renaissance Center was built and called the Renaissance Center, hoping to bring a renaissance to the city. Mm-hmm. It didn't do anything of the sort. It brought zero new jobs downtown. It depleted the downtown core. All the old, all the people in the aging buildings moved into, uh, into uh, the Renaissance Center, and that made the the tenants or the the owners of the older buildings scramble for tenants. Nobody was moving here. Um, so we've had these kind of false starts over the years, but now. Love or hate Dan Gilbert, love or hate the Illiches, um, we're actually in the midst of a renaissance at this point. And so I would say historically, everything that has happened in terms of revitalizing a, a city, whether it be ancient Rome to the city of Detroit today, everything has started in a downtown core and moved out in concentric circles. Uh, so I would say within the next uh, one to two years, things are happening in pockets right now. So there are different neighborhoods outside the downtown core where prices are going up. But it's going to start to move out in concentric circles um, in about, I'd say about five years. So you're starting Mm -hmm. to see rents go up. You're starting to see uh, people start to demand things of school uh, districts that they haven't demanded in the past because people who have money have higher demands. Uh, So things like that are happening. Um, A lot is going to have to do with regional transit as well. And I don't want to get too much into that. But right now, uh, there are particular uh, counties that are voting against regional transit. And every single single region that is thriving in the United States and the world has uh, consistent and strong uh, working regional transit. And Detroit does not have it right now. We're voting on that. Hopefully, uh, the counties will get on board with that kind of thing. So... That is the thing that I see the most that could stagnate uh, the the growth in the region is a lack of regional transit, whether it's high-speed rail, uh, whether it's the queue line going from downtown all the way out to Pontiac, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's bike lanes, you know, things like that, Uh, different forms of mobility around uh, the Detroit area and the region itself. That's going to be very, very um, important. How has your knowledge of Detroit's history helped you see uh, where we are and where we are going? Uh, I can tell you... Just in general, what history does, history lets us know uh, the good things we've done. What are the good things we've done specifically? Cool. Let's do more of that. What are the bad things we've done so we can never do that again? (laughs) Uh, We've done that uh, pretty well, which is why I can look around and say, hey, if you see the police shootings around the nation, right, and then the riots happen, there's a reason why police shootings don't happen as much in the city of Detroit. Hmm. Because if anybody remembers the riots of 1967 – we learned our lesson from the riots of 1967. Uh, so you don't hear much about it. There's other issues with the police in the city of Detroit as well. But I think we we learn lessons well uh, in this city from our history. Uh, I just wish more people around this country and around the world would do that. So uh, that's my answer in a nutshell. We can sit down and have coffee and talk more. I've got a lot mm-hmm. more to say, but we're out of time, unfortunately. Well, very cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Calvin. Um Maybe we should just just do this for the rest of the show. Yeah, no more guests. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm actually. Yeah, we're kind of in a dry spell right now, but um, but we're gonna be back, and I'm looking forward to more and seeing what the year brings. So thank you to all of our loyal listeners, and please follow us on our Facebook page, follow us on iTunes, and share share the episodes, um, share with your friends, um, and like I said, nominate um a hero. Uh, an unsung hero. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks a lot. And we will see you next time.